Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special live edition of Monitor Monday. As we go on the air this morning, national news media is reporting Americans are on the move again this following two months of imposed stay-at-home orders. Meanwhile, the death toll from COVID-19 is approaching 90,000. More than 1.4 million people in the U.S. have been infected with the virus. We have much news to report, as you'll hear during today's live news roundup broadcast. Former CMS official Matthew Albright reports on proposed legislation in response to COVID-19. Healthcare attorney David Glazer reports on risky business. Nicole Emanuel has the Monitor Monday Rack Report. Alan Fick-Sandrick reports on the news at the intersection of COVID-19 and the social determinants of health. Dr. Benjamin Karchner reports on how his facility is mitigating the uncontrolled spread of COVID-19. He's standing by in the state of Washington at this hour to report our lead story. And we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday round here on Monitor Monday. Good morning. Let me start with a non-COVID outrageous story of the week from a managed Medicaid plan in Michigan. A patient was discharged from a hospital after an inpatient admission unrelated to COVID-19. Three days later, they presented to another completely unaffiliated hospital with the same problem that led to their first admission. The patient was evaluated and determined to require inpatient admission. The patient remained hospitalized for several days. The payer contacted the second hospital and informed them that they were denying payment for their admission because the discharge from the first hospital was premature and so the second admission could have been avoided. Now that in itself is outrageous. But the kicker is that the payer representative said that Medicare rules allow this, citing a clause that allows the QIO to deny payment for repeated missions when it is appropriate. Okay, so a Medicare rule that applies to the QIOs can be used by a Medicaid managed care plan to deny a repeated mission when that facility had absolutely no control over the care of the patient at the first hospital? That is just so very, very wrong. Now let's talk about COVID and telehealth billing for Medicare patients. Things are really very easy for physicians and therapists in private practice. They provide the same service with audio and video and bill as if in person and they add the 95 modifier. But for employed physicians and therapists, the billing is not so easy. And we have talked in the past about how designating the patient's home as a provider-based clinic allows billing of services provided there. Yep. What that means is if a patient is sitting at home watching Jerry Springer, they're in their house. If they're on their iPhone having a telehealth visit with their physician, or they're using Zoom on their laptop to do physical therapy exercises for their knee arthritis, they are actually in a hospital clinic. It's confusing. I lost many hours of sleep, but I finally figured it out. And if you want to understand it too, read my article that was published today on Rack Monitor eNews. Now, speaking of billing, I think one of the most confusing parts of this pandemic is the proper use of modifiers, condition codes, 
in place of service coding. And it is made much more difficult because each payer has their own rules on how they should be used. For physician visits for telehealth, most want the place of service as if the patient was seen in person, but some plans want, some plans want place of service O2. The DR condition code was designated by the National Uniform Billing Committee to be used on institutional claims that require special handling of the claim. For some payers, they want it on every claim for every COVID patient, so perhaps they can identify which patients the copayment and deductible should be covered by the payer. But shouldn't the presence of the COVID ICD-10 code tell them that? For Medicare patients, they only want it on the claim when a formal waiver is used. So a COVID patient who is admitted as inpatient and stayed five days doesn't need a DR, but a SNF patient admitted without a three-day stay does need one. What about the CR modifier, which is used on Part B claims like physician claims? Well, CMS say, says that physicians should use the CR if they provide hospital care at a temporary hospital location. Should use it, not must use it? Treating COVID patients is a challenge. Properly getting paid for that care is going to be a whole different challenge. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC Report is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. And good morning, Nicole. Good morning, Chuck, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. Someday around a campfire, we're going to be telling our grandchildren that we survived COVID. Without question, the two biggest healthcare exceptions in a time of COVID are expansion of telehealth and mandatory expansion of Medicaid eligibility. These two issues, the use of telehealth and increased Medicaid eligibility, will be the hot topics of RAC and MAC audits in coming years. We will concentrate today on why Medicaid eligibility is so important. Medicaid eligibility is in high demand. In the time of COVID, more people are enrolling in Medicaid increasing program spending at the same time tax revenues may be falling. The Family First Coronavirus Response Act authorized a 6.2% point increase in the federal match rate retroactive to January 1, 2020. This means more possible federal money in your pocket. Concurrently, it means more scrutiny in future RAC and MAC audits, so tread lightly. Remember, we've got over 500 payors. So how to increase revenue in the time of COVID, being mindful of future audits. Nicole's COVID rule, hire one person to try to get uninsured patients covered by Medicaid. It will pay for itself twofold. An uninsured patient admits, your hired new eligibility person gets to work to ensure Medicaid eligibility for your patients so you get paid. This person, whether it's an employee or an attorney on staff must know all the ways that state governments may change Medicaid eligibility. There are four pathways for you to ensure that you are paid for these uninsured visits with Medicaid federal and state dollars. One, Medicaid state plan updates. Two, eligibility verification plans. Three, Section 1135 waivers. Four, Section 1155 waivers. The Medicaid state plan update as you know, every state plan is different. Your person or attorney needs to keep up with all Medicaid state plan updates in all states in which you render services. State plan updates are actually the fastest ways for state agencies 
to quickly and without bureaucratic tape make necessary amendments. Eligibility verification plans. These are the state verification plans that detail how state Medicaid agencies verify eligibility and use electronic data sources. The facility changes during COVID are the Section 1135 waivers. These are special waivers available only after the President and Secretary have declared a national emergency. In normal times, the Section 1135 waivers are not difficult to understand because they're mostly stagnant, but not in the time of COVID. The fourth thing that your new eligibility person will need to remain up to date on are the emergency Section 1155 waivers. These, like the 1135, are only available after national emergencies. Knowing your state or state's Medicaid eligibility requirements can be the difference in getting paid for many hospital visits. But remember, the more risk you take, i.e. really staying on top of the eligibility exceptions and leniency can help your bottom line. It will help your bottom line, but it can also make you a target for future audits. So do it well, hire your specialized eligibility person and keep everything documented and you too could increase your profit in the time of COVID. For more tips on increasing revenue while being cognizant of future RAC audits, a prep for post-pandemic audits, listen into my webcast live on June 17th at 1.15 on RAC Monitor. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And coming up at about 11 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Alan Fink-Samnick, David Glazer, and Dr. Ben Karchner, who is standing by in Spokane, Washington, to report our lead story. This is Monday. It's May 18th, and you're listening to a special live 60-minute news roundup here on Monitor Monday. Stand by. The Medicare administrative contractors, the MACs, are recouping millions of dollars in Medicare overpayments because facilities are using incorrect patient discharge status code determination under the Post-Acute Care Transfer Act, the PACT rule. Protecting revenues and ensuring compliance are more important than ever. Revenue cycle, compliance, and health information management leaders must clearly understand the nuances of the patient status codes in the PACT rule. During an upcoming RAC Monitor webcast, nationally recognized coding authority Glorianne Bryant will provide the knowledge and tools to mitigate the financial and compliance vulnerabilities posed by PACT rule. The important webcast is this Thursday, May 21st at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now and save $40 when you enter the coupon code MONDAY at checkout. This webcast is part of the portfolio of educational webcasts produced by Rack Monitor. And during this national public health emergency, accessible online education is more important than ever. Visit the Rack Monitor web store and learn how you can subscribe to the Rack Monitor educational webcast. Here now is healthcare attorney David Glazer with another example of risky business. And David, what could be risky this morning? The big risk is that I'm going to take listeners inside my head. So during last week's broadcast, uh, I was discussing the difference between possible and presumed cases of COVID-19. Now, Dr. Erica Raymer sent a note indicating that the definition of presumptive I provided was incorrect. I read her comment mid-broadcast and felt that horrible sinking feeling of having possibly made a mistake live in front of all of you. But the story has the best possible ending. Not only was the definition I read correct, but Dr. Reamer's point was also right 
and the episode provides an incredibly valuable lesson that applies both during and after the COVID emergency. So my segment mentioned the difference between possible and presumed cases of COVID and their impact on some of the programs offering financial assistance to healthcare organizations. The definition of a presumptive case I provided came out of the Health and Human Services FAQ about the General Relief Fund. Dr. Reamer was focusing on the definition of probable and presumptive and confirmed that appear in coding guidance. Now, in the ideal world, would the definitions be the same? Of course they would. But that's not how the actual world works, especially when we're talking about reimbursement regulations from HHS and coding guidance from the AHA or the Center for Disease Control. Basically, everyone's setting up their own rules. So this is a good illustration of how the same word can have a different definition in different programs. A private insurer may define the term inpatient differently than Medicare. That's sort of some of Ron's points from his segment, right? Medicare uses the two midnight rule, while a private insurer may use whatever criteria it wishes. It could use Interqual, Milliman, or its own invented standard. A state Medicaid program may define the term differently. Now we're kind of into Nicole's point. So each state may do it differently, and it may do it entirely differently from Medicare. But this presumed case of COVID discussion highlights how the federal government can use the same term to mean different things. And this situation isn't unique to COVID, or it isn't even unusual. For example, Medicare uses the term shared savings as a synonym for gain sharing, or at least it did for a brief period of time before it chose to use the term to apply to ACO programs. I frequently discuss how the word provider is used by the Medicare program to refer to entities enrolled in Part A rather than using it for medical professionals like physicians or nurse practitioners. So one big lesson from the story is to be acutely aware of defined terms and word choice. But there's a second important lesson. Uh, When the doctor submitted the question, I'll admit that there was part of me that wanted to wait until I had time to determine whether she was right before mentioning it on the air. But that would have introduced the possibility that I was disseminating inaccurate information. It's always possible to make mistakes, but when rules are changing literally daily, it's not only possible, but inevitable. It's imperative that we all keep an open mind and consider the possibility that we misread a provision or are relying on a document that has since been changed or retracted. We need to consider the possibility that the other person, in this case, Erica, could be right and we're wrong, or that we're right and the other person is wrong, or as happened here, we're both right and the world is really confusing. So encouraging people to ask questions and tolerating pushback is always an important part of compliance, but the crisis makes it more valuable. I should add that although I'm asserting my definition of presumptive was correct, I was totally aware of the CDC and AHA text upon which Erica was relying. So just how right was I? So Chuck, Chicago expresses a sentiment that many individuals who are lucky enough to be quarantined with other people might relate to, while those who have been alone would counter that you can have too much of a good thing. But whether or not you agree that everybody needs a little time away, far away from each other, make sure that you never let it be hard to say I'm sorry. 
or consider that you might be wrong. I guess I thought you'd be here forever. Another illusion I chose to create. You don't know what you got until it's gone. And I found out a little too late. Back to you, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Up next, Matthew Albright with our legislative update. The Monitor Monday legislative update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous. Zealous is a market-leading provider of claims cost and payment optimization solutions to price, pay, and explain health care claims. Here now is Matthew Albright. Thank you, Chuck. The House flew into town last Friday and passed a $3 trillion stimulus package called the HEROES Act, now mostly on partisan lines. I'd like to say that the bill has a little of everything, but at $3 trillion, it actually has a lot of everything. Nearly a trillion dollars for state and local governments and schools, another $100 billion for hospitals and other providers, a $200 billion HEROES Fund that would provide hazard pay for essential workers, more of those direct payments to Americans. The methodology is a little different this time. Dependents are a part of the calculation, so it could add up to $6,000 for some households. There's also more tax breaks for businesses and individuals, support for farm, food and nutrition, workforce, support for households in terms of mortgage, rent, and student loans, also pension support, uh, assistance for the U.S. Postal Service, expanding broadband access, help for carrying out the elections, help for carrying out the census, and funds for just about every government agency to support programs that deal with managing all of COVID-19's social, economic, and health impacts. And for the virus specifically, more funds would be put into testing and existing stimulus programs, and money would also be provided to shore up the medical supply chain and the country's medical stockpile. All but one House Republican and a handful of House Democrats voted against the HEROES Act, and Senate Republicans appear wholly against it, at least at this time. Republicans point out provisions that they don't think belong in a COVID-19 stimulus package, including reductions in immigration enforcement, that money for the Postal Service, and a national requirement to hold elections by mail. This week, in fact, the Senate plans to ignore the HEROES Act completely, focusing instead on confirming nominees for positions in the administration. And the White House seems to be siding with the Senate for the time being uh, in terms of being against the bill. But there are some reports that President Trump would support sending those direct payments to individual households again. The Senate and Republicans in general would also very much like to see some legislation on business liability protection. That's the idea that there would be some protection against lawsuits from employees that may be infected while at work or companies that followed government and public health guidelines while reopening. Now, in terms of healthcare-specific elements, the HEROES Act also provides free coverage of COVID-19 testing retroactive to the beginning of the emergency for all patients, regardless of their coverage, and no cost sharing for the patient for COVID-19 treatment. And while we're on the subject of healthcare costs, the Trump administration really 
really, really wants to see the rates that hospitals have negotiated with plans. As you may recall, CMS published a final transparency rule at the end of last year requiring both hospitals and plans to publish their standard rates, including specific negotiated rates with payers. A group of hospitals sued the administration earlier this year about the requirement, and at the beginning of this month, they asked a judge to throw the rule out. Then, last week, CMS snuck a similar requirement into its annual IPPS proposed rule, requiring hospitals to report their median commercial payment rates. Finally, the word on the street is that President Trump wants the next congressional stimulus package to include that same requirement that hospitals and plans publish their negotiated rates. If Congress passed a bill with a provision in it, then the requirement would be in statute, giving it a lot more authority, such that it would be likely to beat any lawsuits that would come against it. Now, it may seem odd that the administration is pushing so hard for transparency in the midst of a pandemic when hospitals are struggling, Chuck, but the administration believes strongly that this one requirement would completely change how the business of healthcare is conducted in this country. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Samnick. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey, and good morning, Alan. Well, good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, all. I missed everyone last week, and there was certainly no lack of news on COVID-19 and the social determinants. However, the most concerning story I read was related to the healthcare workforce itself. The end of 2019 saw healthcare jobs the hottest career around, with over 1.9 million jobs added and eager anticipation about the job opportunities to come. However, we all know how fluid this industry is, and its own workforce now has becoming the latest face of the populations dealing with the social determinants of health. Some numbers to chew on, courtesy of the Bureau of Labor Statistics and American Hospital Association may issue brief. Healthcare spending fell 18% for the first quarter of 2020. Over 260 hospitals and healthcare organizations have now furloughed or laid off employees since the start of the pandemic, with 78% of the 18 million reporting unemployment in April were temporary furloughs. 10% of the 1.4 million members of the workforce who lost jobs in April were hospital staff alone. Expectations that some 47 million persons having to file for unemployment, leaving potentially as many as 40 million without health insurance. Monthly hospital and health system average losses are roughly $50.7 billion dollars totaling $202.6 billion for the past four months alone. One of the most profound figures aligned with the dollars spent by hospitals and health systems for their patient populations impacted by the social determinants, a figure often discussed on this broadcast. From the end of 2017 to the end of 2019, hospitals spent $2.5 billion on social determinants programming and initiatives. $1.6 billion for housing, $1.1 billion for employment, $476 million for education, $294 million for food security, $253 million for social and community programs, and another $32 million for transportation. 
Estimates by the American Hospital Association tally almost $2.2 billion expected to be spent by by facilities for the non-clinical needs of their frontline workforce, roughly $550 million per month through June. Costs to provide childcare, housing, transportation, medical screening, screening, and treatment of COVID-19 hospitals. Hospitals and healthcare systems can barely afford increased health system utilization costs related to the determinants, as increased in recurrent emergency department and primary care visits, hospitalizations with elevated lengths of stay, plus readmissions, not to mention the poor outcomes for populations. What happens when the employees of these systems who have been laid off become as vulnerable and needy as the populations they have long served? For this week's Monitor Monday survey, sponsored by the American College of Physician Advisors, the question beckons. Have you experienced a pandemic-related furlough or layoff at your healthcare organization? Yes, no, or not yet, but expected. Well, we'll see in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. That was consultant and author, Alan Fink-Sandwick. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. And up next, how one healthcare system is mitigating the coronavirus by deploying drop teams. Standing by to report our lead story this morning is Dr. Ben Karchner. He's standing by in the state of Washington. This is Monitor Monday, a broadcast service of Rack Monitor. Stand by. With nationally recognized consultants and state-of-the-art technology, Panacea Healthcare provides auditing services for inpatient, outpatient, physician, pharmacy, revenue integrity, and documentation. Panacea also provides auditing services for specialties, including interventional radiology, E&M coding, surgery, and more to help you meet your auditing and compliance goals. From finding lost revenue to capturing all charges and ensuring compliance and data integrity, you'll be confident that Panacea is focusing on the important risks and opportunities. Here's more good news for your organization. Panacea can electronically audit 100% of your claims or encounters within minutes, revealing those claims with the highest probability for a coding, compliance, data integrity, revenue risk, or opportunity. And for a nominal fee, Panacea will process your claims and provide a diagnostic review. That's the Panacea difference. To learn more, call 866-926-5933. That number again, 866-926-5933. Long-term care providers nationwide are seeking to identify ways to mitigate the uncontrolled spread of the COVID-19 virus amid vulnerable populations like folks in skilled nursing facilities. Case in point, drop teams. Now these are teams of physicians, infection preventionists, and nurses that could be deployed to any post-acute care facility that was felt to be at risk. So after seeing an outbreak at Life Care Center in Kirkland, Washington, the physician leadership and case management at MultiCare in Spokane, Washington, brainstormed ways to prevent a similar local occurrence. Joining us now is our special guest, Dr. Ben Karchner. He's standing by in Spokane to report on how the drop teams are working in his region. This is going to offer us lessons learned from one of the nation's hotspots for the coronavirus. Good morning, Dr. Karchner. Tell us more about drop teams. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everybody. Since the first major outbreak began in my own state at Life Care Center in Kirkland, Washington, it has become clear that individuals residing in various forms of post-acute and long-term care are extremely vulnerable. Of the 90,000 deaths in the United States, it is estimated that a third or more have been residents living in nursing homes. 
the Kaiser Foundation recently noted that in 14 of the 33 states reporting nursing home data, greater than 50% of the total deaths are attributed to nursing home patients. In my own state of Washington, it is 61%. In addition, we have heard in the past weeks about hospitals admitting asymptomatic patients due to facility closures and boarding of patients because of difficulty discharging from acute care. Only recently has CMS addressed this problem by adding additional waivers. The Spokane region is home to over half a million people, has four hospitals with three major health systems and 16 skilled nursing facilities. We realized early on that we needed a way to cover not just a portion of the SNFs, but all of them. With the involvement of the Spokane Regional Health Department and State Department of Health, we formed a regional task force comprised of leaders from every health organization in the Spokane area. All 16 skilled nursing facilities were divided among three organizations to provide a blanket coverage. Each system reached out to their assigned SNFs to take an inventory of needs so that by the end of March, we had a spreadsheet that showed PPE supply, staffing needs, infection prevention capabilities, among other things. We never did see a large surge of COVID-19 patients in our hospitals, so instead we pivoted our focus to infection prevention, becoming a boots-on-the-ground strike team that augmented existing medical staff and provided support through the DOH. The team consists of an infection preventionist, nurse or social worker, and two to three physicians. When the Department of Health finds an at-risk facility, either due to staffing issues, known infection, or even, in one case, of an unrelated positive uh, case being traced back to an involved employed staff member, I would get the call and deploy the team. We have worked in seven facilities with a total of 11 deployments. Some facilities needed multiple visits to make sure the outbreak was contained. Our results have been excellent. There have been six deaths in our post-acute care population in Spokane. All of these were from one facility, and the drop teams were utilized only briefly before another organization assumed care. Otherwise, there would have been less than 30 infections. Uh, sorry, other, excuse me. Otherwise, there have been less than 30 infections and no deaths outside of that one facility. These numbers include not just skilled nursing, but also assisted living and adult family homes. That's not to say we haven't had positive cases, as there have been infected individuals in 11 different facilities, but overall spread has been prevented. A recent news article contrasted Spokane results with a smaller city in southeastern Washington where there have been a total of 50 deaths, and 37 of those were from individuals in nursing homes. Our regional task force continues to meet weekly, and we are collaborating to standardize test testing criteria when discharging patients from the hospital to post-acute care. Up to this point, case management has needed to keep a spreadsheet of individual facilities testing requirements, and these variations often result in discharge delay and hospital backlogs. This will all become more important as we start to resume normal healthcare and elective procedures. The key to the success of this project has been the regional approach, and my hope is this becomes a vehicle for future collaboration and problem solving. I think the great Walter Payton said it best in the simple quote, we are stronger together than we are alone. Thank you and back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ben, very much. That was Dr. Ben Karchner. Dr. Karchner is a physician advisor at MultiCare in Spokane, Washington. Now is the time for the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey. Once again, here's Alan Fink-Samnick. Thank you, Chuck. I am overwhelmed at the turnout for this survey. Have you experienced a pandemic-related furlough or layoff at your healthcare organization? Well, close to 50% of you said yes. 40%, just about 41% said no. But what was most concerning was 11% still said not yet 
but expected. While I was listening uh, to Ben's uh, report, I checked and another 10 hospitals across the country have announced further furloughs and layoffs. And uh, this will be an evolving story. The impact on the workforce will be immense. You're listening to a special 60-minute edition of Monitor Monday. Here's a program note. There will not be a Monitor Monday program next week on May 25th in observance of Memorial Day. David, let's take a look at some of the questions that are coming in. You bet. There are a ton of them. Ron, the first question here is for you. Are you saying that the managed care organization was entitled to deny the claim on the basis of the premature discharge? Uh, This is from Mary, who says, I've won appeals by telling payers that they are not the QIO or even the MAC. If I gave the impression that they were correct, I'm very sorry about that. This is absolutely a crazy rationale for denying the second hospital. Now, if they want to go back to the first hospital and do something about that, that's a separate story. Um, But we tried speaking with the plan and um, the medical director, and they were convinced that they had the authority, so we're going to be taking it to the next level and fighting. Matthew, I had a question for you. You were talking about uh, the stimulus packages and the status of those on the Hill. Now, some political observers say the new House stimulus bill, which is known as the HEROES Act, is uh, dead on arrival. Do you agree with this assessment? Chuck, I guess I wouldn't say it that way. I think um, just about everybody on the Hill, on both sides of the aisle, think that we're going to have to, or they're going to have to pass another stimulus bill um, sometime in the future. And and basically, this HEROES Act, like we talked about, was like a buffet of everything that could be done, all the ideas that have been you know being pushed around Washington on everything that can be done from every aspect of COVID-19. So I think um, the next stimulus act is going to look a lot different, um, but I think basically you have a menu of what can be done with the exception of there was no uh, business liability provisions in there. But other than that, you basically have a menu of everything that can be done. And what we're going to probably see is is people picking and choosing and the politicians and lawmakers picking and choosing what they want to see in this next stimulus act. You know, like I said, I think President Trump wants to see his name on more checks going out to American households. Uh, the Federal Reserve chair was saying last week that Congress really needs to push another stimulus act. He didn't say when, but he said that's going to have to happen. So I think it's going to happen, and and the HEROES Act is probably the uh, the blueprint for it. How is uh, Washington Congress coping with the virus itself? Is it making it more difficult to get things done? Surprisingly, right, they put together the $3 trillion package not even being in town. Um, that was 2,000, uh, 2000 pages. Uh, but what you saw also happening on Friday was that the House passed um, a law or its own rules that said that voting for any legislation can happen remotely. This is the first time in history uh, where uh, a House of Congress can vote remotely and they can also vote by proxy and they can also have uh, committee uh, meetings and committee hearings um, remotely. So I think that's going to be a big change and, and I think depending on your viewpoint, uh, that'll make things run more smoothly or it may make things run uh, less smoothly as, as it'll be more difficult for, to walk across the aisle, if it were, or walk across the hallway and, and talk to fellow lawmakers about an upcoming uh, bill or legislation. Now, again, it's split on bipartisan 
bipartisan um, lines. Uh, for the most part, the Republicans voted against it in the House, and the Senate is is not thinking or contemplating uh, remote voting at all. Uh, but again, you're talking about uh, one of the houses, the one of the cameras has over or over 400 lawmakers, while the Senate itself is only dealing with 100. So you've got um, two very different kind of bodies of lawmakers that you have to deal with. So we'll see how that plays out. Um, but certainly that will um, streamline things for the House and things in terms of getting things done, uh, at least during this pandemic. That was Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Health, and we thank you very much, Matthew. Alan, talking about the new workforce becoming the face of social determinants, what are some of the implications of that? Well, Chuck, as we know, there's a ripple effect of every event, and we can expect a greater drain on the already limited resources, further numbers of applicants, um, to unemployment, which are somewhere close to 40 million people already, um, the system already overloaded, the Medicaid rosters, which was my second choice story for today, are already taxed to their limit from TANF to food stamps, unemployment, other state-funded programs, the CHIPS program, which is always at issue. Um, let's add more persons without access to health insurance and thus more drain on healthcare systems, hospitals, and organizations and those necessary services while we're at it. We can expect to see healthcare systems and organizations screaming um, however quickly they can get those funds that Matthew and the is reporting from the federal government would be wonderful, but there will be much more needed behind them. Thanks, Alan, very much. David, let's answer some of the questions that our listeners have been sending us this morning. You bet, Chuck. We've got a bunch of them. Is there any information on diagnostic coding for antibody testing? The ICD-10 code for an antibody test would be zero, excuse me, Z01.84. And that's according to Dr. Eric Arena, who was kind enough to text me the answer. Okay, this next one I will take. We, uh, my client, my colleagues and I have been asked this by a bunch of people, and it is a darn good question. So I understand that we're not supposed to charge an out-of-network patient more than they would pay in-network. How do we know what they would pay in-network? So first, just a clarification on this. So what, what the law limits is you can't charge the beneficiary, the, you know, the patient, more in copays or deductible than they would pay in network. You don't have to give the insurer a discount, um, but so it's it's basically the patient should pay the same copay or deductible that he or she would pay in network. And how do you know? I don't know that we've come up with a great answer on that one other than Sometimes the patient's insurance card will have the information. Um, absent that, you know, you can try to look at the plan's website. This is a pain in the butt, and I don't think there's a good answer. Um, you know, Matthew, I think uh, I think you think this. Uh, do you have any in insight on this beyond what I do? Uh, no, I, I really don't. And and I remember reading that and thinking, how is the provider supposed to figure out if they're out of network and they're always out of network? How do they know what a negotiated rate looks like? So uh, I, I think that's a great question. And I, I don't know what it's what the answer there is. You know, I think the other thing is that um, some of the states uh, passed, at least early on, reimbursement uh, requirements for uh, COVID-19 treatment. 
I'm thinking of North Dakota, Tennessee, Utah, and all of them are tying it to in-network rates as well. So there's a there's a question at the uh, the uh, state level as well with states uh, passing reimbursement requirements for COVID-19. So no answer, uh, but great question. And it's, I think this is a tough one, but I just want to reemphasize that this is only the beneficiary liability portion, and it doesn't apply to the plan's obligation to pay. So next, um, Ron, I'll, I'll go to you on this one. Um, and maybe Nicole, you can chime in too, but we've got a question from Kathy. It's really more of an observation. And so you're gonna to have to pay close attention to this one because it's the old double negative problem. So the swing bed waiver for acute care hospitals says that there has to be no sniff that would have previously taken the patient, but that is not now willing to. So, and as Kathy points out, doesn't this double negative imply that there has to be a uh, a sniff? It haven't we undone everything with the double negative? So, Ron, you want to comment on that? Well, Kathy, at least last I knew, worked for the Florida Hospital Association, so she knows that reading regulations is not the easiest job in the world. So, I think this was just an unintentional um, phrasing by CMS, and I would take their intent. Um, as what you use as a guideline. Uh, Nicole, you want to comment on that at all? Yeah, actually, so I, I thought this was an interesting question because this brings up a question of, as a lawyer, do you take the face value of what is written, which, Kathy, you're correct, it now says that, you know, it's a double negative, so you would read it as such, and then Ron's point that you would also argue intent. I think both arguments have validity, and it's going to be dependent on when you get in front of an independent tribunal who, who uh, you know, which way it lands. I'm with Kathy on this. I, we know, well, we know what they mean. And so on this one, I'm not too worried about the government coming at, at, at us, although they, need, they should have written this one better. Um, so Linda's got a really good question. With telehealth, does the patient have to be present? I work with developmentally disabled patients who are dependent on their nurses and other caregivers. If the physician is talking to the nurse in a group home to get an update on the patient, can we bill under telemedicine? And this one is near and dear to my heart because I have done lots and lots of overpayment cases over the years, but I've only had one go to district court. And this was the one. Uh, it was this topic. It was obviously way pre-COVID. Um, but it was a physician who worked with this exact same situation. Patients who um, often were nonverbal, and the doctor would bill for time spent interacting with the caregiver. And so this is one where in the manual guide, you, you, you need to have a face-to-face -face with the patient. Um, and so the stuff isn't set up to account for this. I think there's an extraordinarily compelling argument that just as with an infant, when you talk to the parents, you know, the parents are sort of the surrogate patient, and here that same principle applies. Um, and so I think that I, I know I would bill for those. It would be better if you could have the patient present just because then you're meeting the technicalities of the, uh, of the guidance. But conceptually, I mean, that what's, what's happening there is and should be a billable service. And in fact, in that case, ultimately, we wound up reaching a settlement with the government, which was also a first for me back in the time. Uh, uh, and they uh, 
because basically the U.S. attorney who was representing the government there recognized the logic of what should happen. So this is one where common sense and the technicality of the guidance don't work perfectly. Um, it's actually in many ways a lot like question four, right? And so Nicole is correct. There's always a risk in these situations that you'll get in trouble. You'll get some particularly difficult uh, judge or auditor who won't apply common sense, but common sense is on your side. This is sort of a comment. Uh, I'll, I'll ask Nicole for a thought. I have a, a, a thought on this one, too. This is one that almost goes into the political. So could this type of reporting discrepancy between presumed, probable, and confirmed be responsible for inflated COVID-19 cases? Uh, Nicole, you wanted to comment uh, on that. Yeah, I, I think this is one factor that is contributing to inflated COVID cases. My husband yells at the TV every night. There's so many factors, you know, whether autopsies are conducted, for example, but it comes down to what, David, you hit on, that definitions matter. Um, confusion on those definitions will happen now, and the attorneys are going to have to hash it out in the future for rack audit and litigation. But, but the difference between those three words, David, I think is what you hit on earlier as well. So in my comment, I, I think I come at this one slightly differently than Nicole, is that if you limit yourself to positive testing as your mechanism of counting and you're not doing the testing, you're undercounting, right? Um, and the, I think I used this on a prior broadcast, but it's the, the segment about uh, or the, the idea if you come upon a one car accident um, and there's a person dead in the car, there's sort of a presumption that the person died in the accident. It is, of course, possible that they were abducted by aliens who placed them in the car afterwards, or maybe they were shot. But you sometimes take the totality of the evidence and do stuff. And we do that in medicine all of the time and don't always have a definitive test. And so it'd be weird here to say we're only going to count people if you have a definitive test. And it would be extra weird if we're not, in fact, doing the testing. Um, but the definitions here do matter, right? And there is a difference between confirmed and one of the, to be accurate, we should have those that are confirmed and those that are presumed. That's really what science is mm -hmm. all about. So is accurately David, counting things. Yeah, go ahead, Rob. David, this is, I'd just like to add, and I know it's not the intent of this question, but I've read in many places that um, physicians are purposefully um, writing, diagnosing COVID to inflate the numbers for political purposes. And I take great offense to anybody who thinks that physicians are, are intentionally documenting diseases that aren't occurring for um, other than medical reasons. Doctors just would not fake a death certificate they would not diagnose diseases that aren't present. And there sure is a heck of a lot of reason to. I'll give you that for sure. Um, so I, I find that one equally puzzling to me. Uh, all right. Uh, the next question is, uh, Matthew, I'm going to turn this one over to you. Have you, have you. The experts, I think that means Matthew, heard that there are any attempting, attempts to legislate payment parity between doctors and physician extenders like nurse practitioners and physician assistants. So I think this is going to be one of those questions where we reflect upon the term experts because I haven't seen any and it's something that I would like to have, you know, if, if it is popping up, I'd like to be aware of it. Um, we know that in November, uh, President Trump had an executive order which seemed to imply that, you know, rules were forthcoming or there was an idea about parity of um, salary. And um, but I don't think we've seen much of it uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
but again, there's lots of governor's orders out there, lots of uh, insurance bulletins coming out of the states. That's where it would be. So I'm going to take that as a takeaway homework and uh, kind of scour the states to see if any of the states are thinking about that. We know it's already um, a law in Oregon, but I think that was years ago. So um, I haven't seen anything recent on there. So takeaway for me to become more of a quote unquote expert, I'll, uh, I'll research that. Ben, I've got one for you to chime in on, if you can, from Lori. Can you update, and actually, Ron, will come to you after, update, if you can, the status of immunizations for the virus and medications that can effectively treat? David, I, I haven't heard anything uh, definitive. I know there's multiple companies that are, that are working on uh, immunizations. Uh, we're still quite a ways out from anything like that. Uh, I wouldn't uh, hang my hat on having anything uh, new, um, even uh, through an accelerated process. Um, there have been several drugs uh, that have been looked at. Uh, obviously, the uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine has not uh, been shown to be effective and, and likely was damaging due to uh, arrhythmias, and, and uh, I was never a big, a big fan of that early on because uh, we did see some complications with that uh, in, in treatment of patients in the hospital. Uh, however, there are some new uh, antiviral drugs that are uh, hopefully being accelerated through process uh, through in the FDA that uh, it's unclear when we'll be able to actually use those. I know that they're being uh, studied, and then also uh, certain studies are being done with, uh, with plasma uh, also. But um, uh, a lot of these fall into um, uh, previous HIV drugs, uh, hepatitis C drugs, uh, repurposing of, of previous drugs that are being used. But again, all of this is, is uh, you know, pretty experimental uh, at this point. The first reported case of HIV was 1981. The first drug that was approved was 1987, and we're now almost 40 years in, and there is no vaccine. Right? So what's happening now speed-wise is unprecedented. Um, it's gonna take time. We can't th do things by magic. Um, but there's lots of people trying very hard, and we have to be very careful that we base our decisions on science and not on hopes and prayers. Uh, Susan's got a sniff question that I don't think that there is a clear answer to, but we'll just, I'll, I'll note it. So have there been any waivers released that relate to isolation coding on the MDS? So facilities aren't able to code isolation for residents that are using a vast amount of PPE. And this has come up a little bit on some of the Q and A's. And I think uh, CMS is aware of the problem of extra expense for isolation patients. And I think they're noodling it but I am not aware of a clear answer on that one yet. Um, so I think this is out there. There was actually a thing on the office hours last week, kind of a similar thing for, for th that is why 99211 is gonna be allowed for billing um, for, uh, for, for testing, is to kind of recognize the cost of PPE when patients do uh, drive up testing. If I could just add in, the American Healthcare Association for question number 10 actually has put out a lot of guide, or not a lot, but a little bit of guidance for frequently asked questions on alignment for resident for, uh, and payment during COVID-19 resident isolation, and you can find that online. So, Ron, this next one is for, for you. Tina wants to, is seeking some clarity on whether the CR modifier is needed for uh, the professional component of claims. This seems vague and she's puzzled as to, does the, uh, does the physician or non-physician practitioner an NP or PA claim get a CR modifier? It really is very unclear. The CR is not gonna change the payment at all. So really it's more informational. 
but I have seen that Medicare says if you're using a formal waiver, it's mandatory to put the CR on the claim. Um, I suspect lots of claims are going to be paid without it. If they go back and audit and said you should have used it, there's no financial penalty. So I'm I'm a little vague on the whole thing, honestly, just like everybody else. And I think you put it really well. I find these the, the way I, I find the modifiers super confusing on here. It's, it gives me a bit of a headache. Um, so this next one, uh, Matthew, I'm gonna uh, I will ask you for your thoughts on it. I'll kind of comment a little bit too. This is from Sarah. Do we know if CMS is planning to provide further guidance on the various CMMI programs like BPCI, uh, Primary Care First, and Direct Contracting? And so my answer to that is, I don't know. I haven't heard anything. Uh, Matthew, I don't know if you are more in tune on that one. No, that's my answer too. I, I haven't heard anything either. This next one is on ERPS, and I don't know the answer, so I'm going to toss out Peggy's question generally. Any uh, clarification on how to comply with ERF guidance to add a DDS or DDS, which to me are dentists, to the patient identification to identify those who are eligible for the 60% waiver? Ron, I bet you're the person most likely to know that one. I assume they're talking about the DR modifier, which is used to exclude an admission from your statistics. And so I think that in that case, an ERF could use the DR if they're admitting people um, from their own facility, knowing that it would break the 60% rule. Thanks, Ron. Nicole, um, uh, Lori wants to know if you could, uh, Laureen wants to know if you could uh, repeat the resource you were mentioning. Oh, yes, of course. It is the American Healthcare Association and the National Center for Assisted Living put together a frequently asked questionnaire, basically regarding resident isolation. And you can find that if you just Google AHCA and NCAL and isolation coding. Thank you so much. And while we're on, on it, I'll ask Joy's question. What do you think of the future payer audits post-COVID-19 will be? Do you anticipate that they're going to focus on telehealth codes, um, quality documentation of the telehealth visits? What do you think is going to happen? I think that there's going to be a run, if you if you will, with that tor- terminology, a run on RAC audits and MAC audits in the future because there's so many exceptions. And I don't think it's going to be just telehealth. I think it's going to be whether or not people are eligible for Medicare or Medicaid. We're going to talk about isolation coding. We're going to be talking about medical necessity. All these different factors are going to create for just an unbelievable amount of RAC audits in the future. And that's exactly what I'll be talking uh, about on my live webcast on June 17th at 1.15. I'm going to go to you, Ben, for the last question here, which is sort of a follow-up question. Um, So Betty says that she's heard doctors are being told in some states to list COVID-19 as the cause of death for any patient who has a COVID-19 infection, whether it's the direct cause of death or not. Um, Is there any validity to this, and can you comment on it? Like Ron, I I can't speak, you know, about uh, all states, but I I do know physicians, um, and I do know that physicians um, do not code things based upon uh, anything other than than treating the diagnosis. I filled out multiple death certificates in my time, uh, and uh, there's a a format that we do it in. Uh, It is specific. It has not changed. And in my hospital, and uh, me personally, I have never been told to increase coding, change coding, uh, do anything otherwise uh, to, other than just treat the patient that's in front of me. And that is really what doctors are out to do. Thanks, Ben. Uh, I think we're out of time. Chuck, I will turn it back to you and wish everyone 
I guess, a meaningful Memorial Day. Thanks, Ed, very much, and uh, my sentiments as well. And that is going to be a wrap for this live special edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you so much for being with us today, and special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan fink Sandwich, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and, of course, Dr. Ben Karchner. And remember that in observance of Memorial Day next Monday, there won't be a Monitor Monday broadcast, but we will return on Monday, June 1st. Until then... I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Shelter in place, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.